You're listening to The Global Lab from the Bartlett Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL. Oedipus famously solved the riddle of the Sphinx. It asked him what walks on four legs in the morning, on two legs in the afternoon and on three legs in the evening. And Oedipus answered man. The Sphinx was describing three ages of human beings, that of infancy, maturity and old age. Now, patricide, incest and blindness might more accurately have characterised Oedipus's journey, but it's fair to say that he is an outlier in the broad sweep of human history. Our guests today all research the third age of human beings, but also of technology, and how those two things interact, how technology impacts people, how this changing uh, society changes the technology that, that we produce and use. Russell Hitchings will tell us about the negative consequences of being told to act your age, and Martin Jode is going to tell us about the third age of the internet. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, the internet's only in its 50s, so we're hoping it's a little way off retirement. But first, we'll hear from Yvonne Rogers from the UCL Interaction Centre, UCLIC, whose investigations into how an ageing population drives technology actually recruited the University of the Third Age, U3A. Um, my name's Yvonne Rogers. I'm a professor of interaction design and the director of UCLIC, which is UCL Interaction um, Centre, um, which straddles psychology and computer science. So you were awarded this EPSRC Dream Fellowship um, to sort of rethink uh, ageing, computing and creativity. What do you think actually needed rethinking in this area? What, um, and why did it matter? Okay. Um, I think um, ageing and technology needed to be rethought because within my field there's been um, much emphasis thinking about um, the frailties of ageing and how technology can be designed to um, compensate for things like memory loss um, and uh, ways of sensing whether someone has fallen over or whether they've taken their pills, medication at certain times. So it's a, the focus has been very much on trying to um, support uh, older people um, as, uh, you know, as they get more frail. And whilst there's been you know, a lot of uh, um, good work in that area, um, I think uh, it's been at the expense of not thinking about other aspects of ageing. So uh, many people, when they uh, get older and retire, don't necessarily um, you know, lose their memory or, or become socially isolated. It could be quite the opposite. They can be actually more active um, and they can um, you know, continue to use technology and want to contribute something back to society. And so what I would try to do with my Dream Fellowship was to, to um, rethink this relationship that we have as researchers and how do we engage um, people in the third age more. So I spent uh, quite a bit of time talking to people who had retired in their 60s, 70s, 80s in the UK, in um, South Africa and also in Australia and found, uh, much to my delight, that they were perhaps um, you know, very technology savvy and also very active um, in their communities, in their hobbies. And so that um, is very much behind, um, you know, thinking that, yeah, not all of us um, are going to sort of need technology to compensate for our frailties. I see. And so, but what were you actually doing? So the people who were involved in the project, 
What are some examples of things you're actually doing okay. with those people? So one of the, uh, the groups that I um, have been um, working with is the U3A group in Suffolk, and they are a technology group, and they're very much interested in how they can learn different types of programming and different technology to think about um, different uses of it. So some of them had, you know, had used email or the internet, but not necessarily learned how to program. So uh, that group, there are about 20 of them, and, and they started to learn a, a, a toolkit called Arduino, which is looking at sensors and, and um, how you could put them in the environment. And they met up with another U3A group uh, who were into gardening and uh, thought about how they could design technologies to improve um, the um, environment in their village. And an example was to have an automated watering system because they'd just been planting um, lots of plants um, to improve the village to get more people to visit it. So there's an example of a, a U3A group who took it upon themselves to try and, and um, master a new technology um, in order to have a very applied um, and useful use of it. And we came along and helped uh, with um, providing toolkits and, and support for them to, to make that step. When I was in Australia, um, I talked to groups of friends and again used a toolkit which is called Makey Makey and they'd never come across this. It was a basic electronic toolkit which is designed for anyone to become more creative. And um, what we found was that they very much enjoyed using the toolkit and quickly saw what applications you could use it for and came up with a whole slew of ideas um, which we not necessarily would have thought of as designers um, that were thinking about how their children, their grandchildren and their own parents might use this technology in their um, everyday home and work settings. How much do you think the people who were like, taking part and obviously enjoyed taking part in, the, in those projects are representative of the majority of older people? I mean, do you, do you think they were just ones who were particularly keen to be getting involved in technology or could there be more opportunities more broadly? I think there could be more opportunities. I think we we all too easily think that uh, people when they retire um, are, have a fear of technology but since the, the tablet revolution has come out many, um, I think that's um, not the case, I think many people when they get a tablet realise how easy it is to use say compared to those who were given a, a PC where it was much more difficult to get set up and, and use it and if something went wrong and so I think that fear of technology is, is not the case and, and many um, older people are using email, are using smartphones um, in ways that um, make them think well if I can use this then why not use you know, other technologies so I think it's the world of technology is opening up to far more people and that there isn't that fear that um, we used to think that, that older people have. So, and I guess I, it's the case that people coming to retire now in, in their work life would have been yes. clearly exposed to using lots of technology very yes. likely. Yeah. There's the fear that they may be you know, quickly get out of uh, touch as technology, you know, uh, new technologies come along. So, but I don't think that's the case. I think new technologies, and many of them, been, have been designed for a whole range of people to use. You don't have to learn them at work or go to training courses to use these technologies. So, for example, the the new smartwatches that are coming out, um, you can imagine that uh, you know, anyone might want to be able to use those for different things like you know, measuring um, uh, aspects of their health and well-being and that doesn't require you to um, go on a training course for, for how to use smartwatches. Well, and I, I imagine that you know, bearing in mind that society is getting older, yeah. um, this I mean, it's got to be a kind of a key market really for yes. the sort of, do, do you get much of a sense of that in this sort of technology area? Yeah. 
I think so. I think, you know, they are both the consumers but also of new technologies. But there's no reason why they can't contribute to the design of future technologies. And that's where I think... Uh, you know, many companies might be missing a trick there is, is to think how they can engage people who are retired and tap into their wisdom. Well, how do you think they might be able to? Um, I think you know, the first step is to, to hold workshops, to uh, have community-based activities where um, they you know, try out some of their um, beta technologies or they you know, have them to suggest ideas or think about they themselves can have you know, their own startups or engage with other members of the community. So I think it should come from within the community, but um, companies can come along and, and maybe work with them. Interesting. So just briefly getting back to the research, was there anything that came out of it that, that you found surprising, didn't expect to find, or what, or what anyway were the key findings for you? Um, I think it was very positive uh, that, um, you know, at first they did complain a lot about uh, current technologies, but they were more about the bad design of those technologies. So, for example, they were complaining about if they wanted to go online to get a ticket for an event, how fiddly it was to try and go through all those steps. And that's not, you know, because of them not being able to do it. It's because the design of the software hasn't been, you know, there's... Um, developed for people in mind. Um, so I think uh, their gripes about technology um, wasn't because of their ageing, it was more about you know, the bad design in the first place. And that they, were, they embraced it, so, which you know, I would hope for, but not to that extent. So to me, I think that was a really positive finding. Great, yeah. I mean, and, and do you think there's much of a prospect of the situation improving going forward? I mean, I guess you're in touch with yeah. the designers and technologies. I mean, coming back from, to you, do you think? I, I think so. I think uh, I would l- hope to have uh, contributed to a sea change in thinking about ageing and technology and not always just, just think, oh, you know, that poor lonely old person sitting at home, why don't I design a nice social media app for them to keep in touch with someone else? Um, I think it's, you know, thinking, well, actually, why don't we design apps uh, that anyone can use? And so, you know, for example, with a smartwatch or augmented reality um technologies that are coming, it's not about um, us monitoring older people, it's about uh, older people thinking for themselves how they might use those technologies. So I think if we can, you know, if companies can shift from thinking, let's just design for that particular group to help them, uh, rather than let's design with them, then we really, you know, uh, I think that's an important development. And just finally, so have, have threads from this work been continuing through into your current work? What are you working on now? Um, my dream fellowship finished a couple of years ago and um, I've since sort of been working with in cities so working with communities of all ages and how technology interventions can support um, more um, social contact and interactions amongst them so um, I've sort of shifted from just focusing on um, uh, older people to, to communities um, and I think in, you know thinking of, of old you know Older people in communities rather than them as separate is, is important and how they're integrated into them. So we've heard how technology can be driven by communities and can be tailored to communities and individuals, but imagine a far-flung future where the internet was dominated by robots talking to one another and very few human beings at all. Well, that future is not as terrifying as it sounds, as we find out from Martin Dejode as he tells us a little bit about the Internet of Things. 
Yes, I'm uh, Martin Dijode and I'm a research associate at CASA. I joined to, to work on an interesting project called Tales of Things, uh, which was um, related to the concept of the Internet of Things. Um, and the Internet of Things is the idea that the Internet will, will uh, increasingly be used by things pushing data to it, um, perhaps rather than uh, people, um, as is happening now with sort of social media or, or, or companies who are putting data for people to consume, but uh, increasingly machines, devices, uh, anything might uh, be transmitting data to the internet. So that's sort of where the things comes in. Um, and the history of the Internet of Things, the term was coined by the Auto ID Centre MIT in uh, 1999. And they were looking at um, supply chain management and how to automate supply chain management and logistics. And they were using RFID tags that could be machine read, they could automatically read by a machine. So you could completely automate your supply chain. And uh, this was adopted by some consumer companies like uh, Procter & Gamble, I think was one of their partners, and, an, um, uh, and eventually by a lot of retailers who found it very useful for stock management and inventory control. This led to uh, machines pushing data. So rather than having uh, RFID tagged items that you scan, uh, you then had smart machines that potentially could, could upload data to the Internet of Things. But Tales of Things, actually, the research project that I joined uh, in 2009 at CASA, Tales of Things was actually more like the early ideas behind the Internet of Things, in that we were taking everyday objects, uh, mementos, things on your mantelpiece, things that might have a history uh, that you want to preserve behind them, and we were tagging them with initially QR codes, which are 2D barcodes that you could read with a smartphone. Uh, and this would take you to a web page uh, devoted to that item. So the user, the, the, the owner of the item could, could upload data about that particular item. And when you scan the QR code, the tag on the item, uh, your smartphone would launch uh, and be directed to that web page. So, so any, any, any person who came across this, this item in the wild could scan the tag and then see the history behind the item. <laughs> and that, that was sort of the, 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 some of our initial research, and that was sort of a general purpose uh, application service for, for anyone to upload their, their objects. Any object could be, could be uploaded to Tales of Things. <laughs> what sort of objects did you get in there? We got quite a lot of gadgets, uh, quite a lot of uh, mementos. It was used quite a bit in in uh, uh, study in, in schools and uh, uh, teaching. Um, but we did a big, we did a, a couple of studies with Oxfam that was quite interesting. Um, and although initially we used uh, QR codes because they were sort of cheap you can print them off and easy to scan with smartphones. For, for some studies we used RFID tags and we, we did a study uh, with Oxfam 
in one of their charity shops in Manchester as part of the Future Everything conference and basically a couple of researchers were sort of in the shop for a couple of weeks and when someone dropped something off uh, donated something to Oxfam they asked them if they could record a small piece, a small audio piece about the history of that object um, and uh, in the end we, I think we tagged about 20 or 30 items uh, so basically the item was dropped off, we then tagged it with an RFID tag that was uh, linked to uh, the particular audio story re we'd recorded from the donor and we built some uh, RFID readers that talked to a central uh, laptop over Bluetooth so that shoppers could go around scanning the RFID tag and then uh, hearing the story played back over some loudspeakers in the shop and it was a, it was a really effective study uh, and it worked really well and, and so that led to a few collaborations with Oxfam where we, we uh, tagged items that were donated w with their provenance so, so that was some interesting work we did on that project but more recently I, I've been working on uh, another project called uh, creating and exploring digital empathy uh, seed for short C-E-D-E -E. and uh, although this is not necessarily not obviously an Internet of Things project one of the strands of the project is using um, biosensor data to, to try and get a um, a handle on someone's emotional state so, so sort of digital empathy you know put yourself in their shoes so we've used um, things like heart rate monitors uh, skin conductance meters and one of my, one of my colleagues uh, Panos Mavros is doing a lot of work with EEG which monitors your brain waves uh, and so again you're, you're back to sensors that ultimately are probably don't necessarily have to upload data to the web but uh, in many cases they do upload data to the web so um, again you've got this connection with the internet of things and 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 this is sort of uh, an area that's very much growing uh, in consumer applications you know with uh, smart wearables um, eye watches um, fitness trackers uh, so, so, so you're getting to a situation where where people are now having their own personal networks that again are uploading uh, data to the web so that uh, they can track their fitness progress so sort of the internet of things is, is really becoming uh, uh, a reality for, for everyday people. Hmm. Well, it's funny you should say that because we hear more about it but I think a lot of us still don't necessarily, I don't feel like I experience the internet of things in my everyday life but are there, are there things going on that I'm just not noticing? Uh, well yeah I mean the internet of things covers m many strands so, so we had the uh, tales of things sort of uh, and logistics uh, where, where you're tagging things with RFID tags then you have uh, sensors uploading data to the internet uh, perhaps as part of um, uh, environmental monitoring so, so it, it, many cities now will have uh, noise sensors, pollution sensors, temperature sensors that upload data to a central uh, 
server that um, are keeping track of uh, various environmental markers. So, so that's one area that uh, it's uh, been adopted. Also, one of one of the interesting areas was uh, during the um, just after the the 2011 Pacific. Pacific earthquake and tsunami because the tsunami flooded the Fukushima nuclear power station and uh, caused a sort of a meltdown and um, at the time um, a lot of sort of hackers and hobbyists uh, were using uh, Internet of Things service to up upload data from Geiger counters to um, to the internet so, so uh, there was a lot of crowdsourced data uh, about radiation levels uh, in Japan uh, that basically resulted fr fr from uh, people uploading uh, hobbyists uh, hackers uploading uh, data from their own personal sensors so so that was an area quite an interesting area mm -hmm. uh, that would be an example of the internet of things mm -hmm. And what what happened to this data? Was it taken up? Uh, yes, it was. It, it, it um, the, the service they they were using a service called Patch Bay, um, and uh, some of the um, maps of radiation data w w was uh, used in the media quite a lot. Um, it was it was quite a. Um, a noteworthy event in sort of the history of the Internet of Things. I mean, there, obviously there are, there are problems with, with calibration and, and that, that kind of thing, but, but uh, um, it, it sort of proved its worth um, in that particular example. And do you, so going back to your work on using the Internet of Things to, to upload, as it were, people's emotional responses or to give an idea of the history of an object, etc. Do you see this as part of that tradition of using the Internet of Things to, to benefit people's everyday lives, or, or is this just exploring the possibilities? In the C project, the Creating and Exploring Digital Empathy project, which is a collaboration with the University of Lancaster, and uh, Sheffield University. Uh, it's it's a research project, really, and and it's not directly an Internet of Things uh, project per se. But but I think with the adoption of smart wearables, so these smart watches that have an increasing number of sensors, I think uh, sort of uh, emotional monitoring, uh, monitoring one's affective state will be a growth area and obviously from the point of view of pure health uh, apps and fitness apps it's quite a big area already but I think it will be a growing area and I think the emotional side of things will come into it, sort of stress stress monitors whether people want this data uploaded to the internet is a different thing uh, um, the, 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 that one has to be a little bit more careful about uh, so at the moment it, 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 the, the, Wearables are forming a sort of personal network uh, with your smartphone generally as the hub, mm -hmm. uh, and the smartphone can upload this uh, to, to various portals, and it usually does. Uh, uh, certainly, with, with fitness data, it usually does. But but whether one wants one's um, uh, stress levels uploaded to to a service, different thing. Mm. Uh, uh, another question, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And. 
But there is an area, there is an area that, 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 uh, which is less contentious uh, uh, and uh, perhaps more environmentally friendly is, is the, the, the idea of these smart, uh, smart thermostats and uh, smart energy meters where, which are uploading data that you can view remotely about uh, you know that your consumption mm. uh, your energy consumption in the home so the smart home idea and uh, you know you can turn down the heating remotely uh, soon you'll be able to switch things on I mean, you can switch things on remotely already uh, so the the idea of the smart home is also part of the internet of things so so that's an area which is generally I think uh, that there are uh, less uh, potential downsides to, to that area. Uh, I mean, it's. Uh, Is this something that's that's happening now? Again, it's something we seem to hear about. But yes, I think it is happening now. I think it, it's. Uh, I, I actually don't have a smart home yet, uh, and I don't have a smart energy meter. I think uh, I think a lot of new builds will increasingly incorporate this kind of technique technology into it and you can buy you can buy uh, smart thermostats that you can sort of retrofit so so I think it is becoming more common but I don't think it's yet uh, completely pervasive but but I think it's a it's a growth area and I, certainly uh, people are using it and people are monitoring the, the, their homes and it's now becoming more um, it's, it's 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 moving out specialized niches more into the mainstream so so the general public are beginning to use uh, smart devices, smart meters, and of course smart wearables. So, so yes, it's beginning to gain traction with the general population and and, and move out of the the sort of uh, the, the, the specialised areas and the, the hacker communities into the more mainstream public use. So we're not quite yet at the stage where uh, Twitter is dominated by sentient fireplaces sending each other selfies. But whether you heat your home with a Hell 9000 or an open log fire, there are factors beyond the technological which will influence the way that you or I consume energy. And you might hope that by the time you enter the third age, society's expectations of you are really the least of your concerns. But Russell Hitchings is about to tell us that that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Russell Hitchings. Uh, I'm a geographer here at UCL, and I guess I would characterise my research interests as being about um, the changing ways in which different groups of people live in certain aspects of their everyday lives, and what we can learn from looking at those changes in terms of thinking about ideas about how to make society more generally happier and potentially more sustainable too. So I do studies focused on different groups of people, focused on specific aspects of how they live and how they organise their lives with a view to thinking about how they've come to do so in certain ways and what we can take away from that. Okay, um, and this this week's theme is the third age yes. um, and so do you focus specifically, I know you don't think of yourself as a gerontologist but um, you no. do focus on older populations as well as... I have done in some recent projects. I've come to this through those interests I just outlined to you, so I'm interested in the ways in which we can draw on different disciplinary perspectives, so gerontology being one of them, to think about different aspects of how we live today. Um, and 
within that, so I've come towards looking at older people um, in so far as they're quite an interesting case study to consider some of those things. So there's various ideas around about how older people might be living in different ways to how they've done in the past and various ideas around about how older people might be potentially consuming resources in a way that might be concerning for some people. So, and also there's the more general sense, well, fact, that there are more and more older people around, so we're living longer, so it's an important group to understand more generally. So all of those things together have encouraged me to look at older people in some of my recent work. So the project was all about trying to influence, potentially, to positive effect, the ways in which older people kept warm at home in the wintertime. And one of the things we found was the way in which was related to how well, particular ways of keeping warm could tap into that stigmatised idea of being an older person in a way that people didn't want to do. So, for example, we've got some interesting material about how people use blankets in their daytime activities, so not on the bed, but when you're watching TV. The idea of having a blanket over your knees, for example. So some of our respondents did that because that was a comforting and actually quite sustainable way of keeping warm compared to using the heating a lot in the winter months. But sometimes they would tidy them away in advance of our meeting, that happened on occasion, partly because they wanted to keep the house tidy to present it nicely to us, and partly because they didn't want to recuperate that idea of being an older person. So an older person sitting in front of the telly with a blanket over your legs. So there are issues there to do with how they wanted to present themselves and also how they wanted to think about themselves. So how these objects allowed them to, I guess in a sense, yeah, construct their own feeling of who they were. So what was interesting about the blankets example was how s certain other things that were really blankets, if you like, so the idea of having a throw from Ikea right. and using it in exactly the same way as you might do a blanket, so a knitted item, for example, somehow allowed some people to avoid the stigma of using that item. So a you know, very minor change to what they're actually using, but sufficient enough to avoid that stigmatised idea of being the incapable older person that was doing things that were somehow backward, out of date. Right. But yet, we're also, in effect, doing exactly the same sort of thing. So a set of norms about what you should do if you're an older person, or to avoid being an older person? Um, part, that was part of it. I mean, we didn't... I mean, obviously we had to be a little bit careful in terms of the research design to not position our respondents as older people necessarily because for various different interesting reasons people are often quite keen to distance themselves from the suggestion of being an older person because there's a broader societal stigma attached to being older. So we were careful about that but however yes we were exploring those kinds of things. So were there certain ideas that were common to that group and how did they, how did those come about? Did they persist from earlier points in their lives? Were they a response to concerns or worries about having a stigmatised identity of being incapable, older, in that regard? Okay, because yeah. there seems to be a split between sort of the idea of an elderly po an, an older population being vulnerable um, yes. and needing protection, but also this idea that the, the baby boomer generation is incredibly powerful economically and politically. And did that come up in your research as well, these kind of ideas? Um, well, that's coming up in the next project that we'll talk about, perhaps. Okay. But in the first project, it didn't as such because they weren't the baby boomer generation. Right. They were older than that. I okay. mean, we were, 
yeah, that was a, s a slightly smaller scope to study than the, the one we're doing now, I suppose. I mean, some of their, some of their, their ways of uh, talking about how they kept themselves warm were very much, I guess, uh, along the lines of demonstrating that they were very different to the broader notion of an older person being potentially incapable. There's a kind of sensibility within our data that they knew what they were doing and they were doing what was right for them and that was a fine thing to be doing and it was kind of partly wrought out of the way in which, well, coping with winter cold is often talked about in the media. It's very much along the lines of can they cope, fuel poverty, issues to do with, you know, this is a vulnerable population and it's true that part of our study was motivated by the fact that older people are more likely to suffer hardship in the winter months and more likely to die actually in, in the winter. So we were interested in looking at that but Partly as a consequence of that way of looking at things, the way in which older people were often talked about in the media was along the lines of kind of an incapable old person kind of huddled in front of a bar heater, a blanket over their knees, didn't know, you know, needed our help, basically, is the way in which kind of broader charities and the like were trying to position the ways in which older people managed the winter time at home. Um, and that's all well and good. You can see that being a sensible strategy for those groups. But in terms of the impacts that kind of idea had on the ground, I think for one of the interesting things about our study is the way in which it made some of our respondents kind of like switch off to broader ideas about how they might deal with the winter in a better way because they'd They're already... Trying to avoid that kind of stigmatisation then? Or yeah, or they, well, they were clear that they weren't, they were clear that they were capable. So if the wider public bodies that were potentially trying to influence what they were doing were positioning them as incapable, partly to solicit support for what they were doing, then all the people that we spoke with were less likely to listen to their messages because they thought, well, these guys are talking about us as if we don't know what we're doing. Actually, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm doing and I think I'm doing a reasonable thing. Feasibly, they could do it in a better way, in a potentially less energy consumptive way, in a cheaper way, in a healthier way. But because of that widespread way of representing what they were doing in the winter, they were less, I think, receptive to the idea of being influenced by wider groups because they didn't see themselves in that representation. They were quite different from the incapable older person. Right. And so how did you have, did you feed your results and your findings back to the, the, the representation producers? I'm quite keen on doing that in my work, given the way it's set up, set up to try and improve things if, if possible. Um, so we had a policy workshop and one of the fun things about that was we had people from energy companies and also people from kind of a interest groups, so people that are trying to advocate for older people's capability and other people from groups to do with older people more generally, so charities along those lines, and we try to use our findings to kind of stage a bit of a dialogue between those different constituent groups about how, what they could do based on that. Whether or not the second ages treat the third age with the respect they deserve, they are forced to be reckoned with economically, culturally and increasingly technologically. And as tempting as it is to set up a dichotomy between the Internet of Things, an Internet designed for robots, for devices, um, versus an Internet set up for human beings, the truth is the Internet of Things has the capability to support living for a range of people who, who can actually be enormously empowered by digital technology, not least of all the third age. 
Thanks very much to everyone who took part in the Global Lab The Third Age. Uh, to our guests, Yvonne Rogers, Martin de Jode, and Russell Hitchings. Uh, the show was produced by Charlotte Johnson, Mike Fell, Ollie Marsh, and myself, Martin Zotzorswick. You can find us all on Twitter. I'm at Sociable Physics. And we will be back again next month with a brand new episode of the Global Lab.